Hello, I'm Brandon Martini, a commercial pilot and flight instructor. And I'm Carson Vasquez. I'm a private pilot. And you're listening to the Aviation Mentors Podcast, sponsored by Stratus Financial. So buckle up, because the Aviation Mentors are taking off. Today, we are going to uh, tackle one of our favorite episodes. Uh, one of our favorite episodes to do is answering Reddit questions uh, from soon-to-be or current pilots, uh, asking random questions that are are just different. Um, they're the same questions that everyone asks uh, at flight school. They're the same questions that aspiring pilots ask. So we always feel that these are really important to chit-chat about and talk about in general. So we are going to tackle uh, some Reddit questions again, and I'm really excited to do it. You know, I think we love doing it because we love talking to pilots and especially student pilots. Uh, there's just something about teaching people, answering questions, and you get that satisfaction. Uh, I think I'm going to enjoy being a CFI. So I get that satisfaction out of helping someone really understand something. So let's kick it off with question number one. Uh, this one's for Brandon. It says, aspiring pilot here, what is the best and most efficient way to start a flying career while still a full-time student in college? That is a great question. Really, the, the best and most efficient way to do that is to take it one step at a time. A lot of people don't take anything one step at a time. They feel like they just have to do all or nothing. Otherwise, they'll never finish. But um, with me, uh, I had a, a new baby. I had um, I was working like more than full time, <laughs> um, like 70 hours a week when I first started learning how to fly. So that's equivalent to somebody being in college. Being in college is kind of a full time job. So just take it one step at a time, fly two to three times a week if you can. Uh, and then you need to study 15 minutes a day. And I've said that before, uh, in a lot of the episodes actually. So the best and most efficient way is to be consistent. Um, don't just go out and go party and go do all the things that you want to do. Cause you're in college now go actually like make a life for yourself because college is going to be a few years. Go ahead, go have fun. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously going to be a good time, but but make sure that you're really thinking about your future. I mean, you're you're at college to learn, so spend your extra spare time also to learn. And if you want to learn to fly and become a, a pilot or an airline pilot, uh, go fly one to three times a week to stay proficient and keep up your, your learning because that's what's really, really important. And I think as a college student, I can also talk about this one a little bit. Um, taking on flying and then all the ground associated with flying is really like taking on another another high level class. Um, it's it's a lot of work, and you're taking on a, a, basically a new language, um, trying to learn everything there is to learn. Just in your private pilot stage, there's enough to learn, um, and you can maneuver your schedule with classes. Trying to open up a spot where there's sunlight during the day, uh, that's when you can do flight training. So open that spot, and then book yourself as far in advance as that semester takes you, uh, just so you know when you're available to take that class and when you're available to do the flight training for it. Absolutely. Our next question on this, uh, on this Reddit countdown day uh, is why cancel after an aborted takeoff? And I think this, I don't know what this person meant when they asked this, but I'm assuming why, why cancel your flight lesson for the day? Why cancel? Um, why cancel the aborted takeoff? I don't know. What, what's your take on this question, Carson? Well, I think with an aborted takeoff, you're aborted it for one of two reasons. Uh, either it's you or it's the plane. So I, you could also cancel your, your whole day of flying for either of those reasons, either you or the plane. You, you made the decision to take off, so environment's probably not an issue. So let's start with you as a pilot. Um, maybe you got a little too nervous. Maybe you heard someone on the radio say the, uh, the wind was, was getting, getting up there or turbulence is high once you get up there. Could be any of those things. And you board that takeoff and your nerves are shot from doing it. 
uh, especially as a student pilot or someone with low hours that hasn't done that before. It's not exactly the most calming thing. You plan on taking off and then you didn't. Uh, or it could be an issue with the plane. Maybe your airspeed didn't come alive and uh, you decide that's one dumb mistake too many for you. Could even be there's an issue with your oil or uh, engine temp gauges. Maybe your oil pressure was dropping and your oil temperature was rising, which is a sign of you know huge engine problems coming. So it could be any of those things, and I would probably cancel my day if any of them happened too. I think I've only had a border to take off one time, and it's just my uh, my airspeed wasn't coming alive as fast as it should have been, and that that was just it. And took it to uh, to the Kavu actually. And he said there was no issues, and I said give it another shot. So he signed it off, and no problems. And I have aborted takeoffs before. Um, actually, several times I've aborted takeoffs. I've aborted takeoffs for – so it sounds stupid, but if you don't do use your, your checklist properly, you will miss things. Um, and a lot of people will lean their mixture before – before takeoff. Now you have to lean your mixture if you're at certain density altitudes. But what I mean is if you're supposed to have your mixture full rich uh, and you had it leaned for taxi and you never enriched it, that can cause a problem. So I was flying a multi-engine one day and I had the mixture leaned and only one of the engines produced full power. And I started veering off the runway. I thought I was losing an engine on takeoff. So I did exactly what you're supposed to do. And that's cut both engines power immediately uh, and come to a complete stop. And then I realized what I, what mistake I made. Um, And then I actually just pushed the the mixtures full forward. I advanced the throttles and I had plenty of runway to continue my takeoff, but it was just because I didn't think about it. I've also aborted takeoffs in the icon. One time I aborted a takeoff, my pitot tube had, had debris in it. So my airspeed uh, came alive, but only to like 10 knots or 20 knots or something ridiculously low. And I knew that wasn't correct. So I aborted the takeoff and I had to just fly another day and I was really excited to fly that day, but uh, I'm not going to go fly without airspeed even though it has an angle of attack indicator, which would have been decent to use, to be honest. Yeah, I'd feel like something was wrong if we didn't talk about seaplanes um, just in every episode. So I, I also have a question just off the cuff. My, my thought is there's a lot of splashing going on when you have a, a seaplane you're taking off from the water. Is that right? Is there, is there a lot of water coming up? And if there is, like, does that get in your pitot tube? And that leads me to another question. When you're flying through rain, what happens when there's uh, rain going through the pitot tube? Well, there's a drain hole in the pitot tube, and that's what that's for. Uh, so it, uh, it gets rid of the water that way. Um, when you're flying through rain, there's not really a lot of water that gets into that pitot tube and whatever it does, it, it goes through that, uh, that drain hole. Now, when you're taking off, the same thing happens. Uh, pitot tubes normally pretty high, uh, on, on airplanes and it's kind of out of the splash zone, so to speak. Now, when you're taking off, it's just like when you take off on a boat. I mean, water's not splashing directly over the top of your, your plane, right? It's only splashing around it. Um, and then as you start getting speed, you're, you're not going to have as much splash going on. So it's not really that big of an issue. When you do come to land though, you could, you could get quite a big splash if you do it incorrectly. Uh, so that could be kind of an issue, but it, it doesn't really affect your, your pitot tube, so to speak. I've never had that issue. Yeah. I've never had that issue. Brian, uh, I figure if I ask enough seaplane questions, I can milk my single engine seaplane ground out of you. So the next question from Reddit was, is how the heck do CFIs stay so calm? Great question, Carson. Um, I'm a CFI and I'm like, I'm more calm with students in an airplane than I probably am with pilots I've never flown with. Pilots I've never flown with, they're going to do things and not listen to me, uh, even if I'm right. Granted, they might be right also. So, I mean, I'm not telling them they're necessarily wrong. Sometimes they might be, sometimes I might be. But honestly, I am very calm in the airplane as long as I've had some things that have been outlined with the student, like 
positive exchange controls is my number one thing. I want them to literally throw their hands up and move their feet back if I say my controls, because that means I need uh, control of that aircraft immediately. Sometimes it's very I don't know, nonchalant. You're just transferring controls slowly. But if I say my controls, I want them to let go immediately. And as long as that student has that understanding, and I'll test them every once in a while, even after they've been heavily trained on that during their first couple lessons, I want to make sure that they relinquish those controls. So if I already know that they relinquish controls when I say I need it, there's literally nothing they can really do that I can't fix. The only thing they, they can do on the ground is not let go of the controls and let me fix it like close to the ground. And really, that's it. I mean, any other time, if they get me into a spin, I can get out of a spin. They put me into stalls, I get out of stalls. Put me in an accelerated stall, I get out of whatever whatever they put me in, I can get out of, unless it's within like a couple hundred feet of the ground. And that's when I have my hands near the controls, just in case they, they do screw up something. But to be honest, normally, I'll just tell them tell them how to fix it. And as long as they're good at listening, um, they'll be able to take care of it. So I'm really never nervous in an airplane with, with a student, um, unless they just refuse to listen. And if they refuse to listen, then I don't want to take them as a student anyways. Yeah, that's how I stay so calm in a, in a cockpit. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, how often do you see students kind of freaking out? And, and what do you do to help them stay as calm as you do? A lot of students freak out over a lot of different reasons. Um, some people it's heights. Some people it's stalls. Some people it's steep turns. Some people it's, it's banking, just even 10 degrees. They're just not understanding. So the way that I understanding what's happening so, or they're, they've got a death grip on the controls and they're pulling up and pushing down and turning right and turning left. And what I'll do typically when that happens, I'll say, Hey, just let's calm down. I want you to take a deep breath. I use the deep breath thing all the time. Cause it really calms people down. Just getting more oxygen flow into your, your, your bloodstream. It's just, it's going to have a calming effect. I had a student that I would tell him that every time we'd go fly, I'm like, just take a deep breath. Um, I know it's a, a stage check or I know it's a, a whatever it is that's making you nervous. It's like a check ride, but just take a deep breath and relax because everything's going to be fine. You're going to do great. And I just give words of encouragement that also calms people down. Outside of that, I will show them how the airplane um, is controlled at just with minimal input. So I'll trim the airplane out and I'll put it in straight and level flight at a certain airspeed. And I'll just show them, hey, look, I can take my hands off the controls. I can take my feet off the rudder. I can take my, I can do everything. The plane's trimmed out and it's just flying. This airplane's not going to do anything that I don't want it to do. And I just try to correlate the difference between letting the airplane fly you and you flying the airplane. So those are really kind of the big things. So we've got one more question we're going to tackle today. And that question is, I know eventually I want my private pilot's license, but for now, I'm looking for something that'll allow me to fly a small single engine plane with one passenger during the daytime. I live in Texas, so I know that I'll be flying over 100 miles to reach my destination. That's part of the reason I want to fly. Turn a six-hour drive into a two-hour flight. Thank you in advance. So I think this person was talking about possibly becoming a recreational pilot. There's a reason why there's not very many recreational pilots in the U.S. ever even certified to be recreational pilot. You can do what you want as a sport pilot. Uh, so that might be an option for you, but Carson, I want you to kind of, to explain the the difference on this and like, how can we answer this and talk about why should you just get your private pilot compared to something else? I mean, it seems like the right thing to do, right? Well, I know you can get your sport pilot license in less hours than your private pilot license technically. Um, so it's kind of like with your getting your private pilot license, you technically can get it at 40 hours with part 61 and technically with 35 hours in part 141. 
Uh, but just because you can doesn't mean you will. Uh, it's usually going to take more training. So the reality of it is it's probably going to take you about 40 hours for a sport pilot license um, just to be proficient enough for someone to want you to fly alone all the time um, and give you that sign off. And in addition to getting your sport pilot license, you also need to have uh, additional endorsements to go into anything that's not an Echo or Golf airspace. You want to go into Bravo, Charlie, Delta airports, um, you have to have endorsements for them. So it's, it is a little bit of a difference. And the time you're going to spend to get those endorsements and practice at powered airports like that, you're you're going to need to um, to spend more time. So you might as well get private where it comes with all of your all of your privileges. So overall, uh, it, it's really just, it makes more sense to go get your private. You have all those privileges that come with it. And um, you are able to fly more airplanes. You're able to fly more passengers. You can fly day or night. Um, because just because you want to fly during the daytime, like this uh, guy asked, just because you want to doesn't mean you're going to. Um, it really limits the the amount of time you can fly to, at best, 12 hours of the day. Uh, at worst, it could be six. Depends on where you live. And if you're going in Texas, too, you're going to have to navigate airspace. And you're only able to fly up to 10,000 feet, I think. Um, so it's going to limit a lot of what you can do. And you're going to have to spend a lot more money trying to upgrade that to a private pilot license later on. Um, a good thing, though, about getting a sport pilot license, you don't need a medical certificate. So it could make your life a little bit easier uh, if, if that's one of the issues you run into. But it does also limit what you can do. And a lot of people don't like having limitations, uh, especially when everyone else can do it. It's something that can easily be broken, either on purpose or accidentally. Uh, so why would you set yourself up for that situation? Yeah, I always tell people, unless you think you could have like a really minor medical issue, obviously you need to self-diagnose. If you're not fit to fly, then you're not going to go fly any type of airplane, right? Um, because that's not safe. Always working on that I'm safe checklist, of course. But if you don't want to go get a medical and you've and you've never been denied a medical, then the sport pilot way is probably the, the way to go because all you really need is a valid driver's license uh, to get a sport pilot. But if that's not a concern, you'll pass your, your FAA medical without any questions go get your FAA medical and go get a, go get your, um, go get your private pilot certificate. And I know by the way, all the people are saying it's not a, a license. It's a certificate. The FAA uses both terms interchangeably. They call it a license and a certificate and that's on their website, even though it is called a private pilot certificate. <laughs> but outside of that, um, I would say it's only, it's only a few more hours. You just have to do a cross country or two more. Um, you only have to do a little bit more ground go get the private pilot rather than the sport and don't even go look at the recreational. It's like a pointless certificate unless you just like fly patterns at your house in the middle of uh, the country. That's really the only reason that's good for anything. There's a reason why there's only like 150 recreational pilots out there or something really, it's some real, really low number. So yeah, I would totally agree. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad you agree with me. Um, I <laughs> uh, it is pretty cool being able to answer all your guys' questions. Um, please feel free to submit more to us. We we absolutely love answering questions and getting to talk about stuff that is just completely random, doesn't have a topic like this. Uh, it's fun. We just, we enjoy talking to student pilots and any pilots. Yeah, we always have a lot of fun on these uh, these Reddit question episodes, and they're pretty awesome to uh, to talk about different questions that we get. Either post them on Reddit or send them directly to us because we're going to try to do one of these, uh, I don't know, every 8 or 10 or 15 episodes or so. We do two, two episodes a week. Uh, so if there's any content that you guys want to hear hear about uh, or hear us talk about, uh, please let us know. We're more than happy to uh, attack some of those items. Uh, Carson and I yesterday met for 
for about a half hour on the phone just to come up with new episode ideas because we've we're coming up to 50 episodes and that means we've done uh 50 episodes on different content which has been challenging at times to to come up with that much content but every time we have one of these brainstorming sessions we just realize how much stuff is in in aviation so in the next uh 10 episodes or so you're going to hear some really cool stuff uh we've got some fun stuff lined up uh we also have uh, fasana uh, coming up next week, which uh, we're going to be at with Stratus Financial. And then we also have Sun and Fun coming up, which we are extremely excited about. We can meet some of y'all uh, there and uh, meet some of the partner schools for Stratus uh, and also some of the, the students that want to apply. So it's going to be a really fun time. Uh, this next month is going to be full of aviation greatness. And uh, I can't wait to be a part of it with you guys. So as always, if you'd like to reach out to either one of us, you can reach us at Twitter or Instagram. For me, it's at Mr. Martini Guy. For Carson, it's at Carson underscore AV17. You can also reach us online via our website, aviationmentors.com, or email. It's either Carson or Brandon at aviationmentors.com. And as a wrap up for the day, remember, we're here to guide you in your aviation journey. So fly safe and enjoy the ride.